Hello and welcome to the Being and Becoming podcast. Together we are being honest in conversations about thoughts we're having and books we're reading in the hopes of becoming better, more able versions of our current selves. My name is Logan Hauer. I'm joined today by my two regular co-hosts, Austin Sohn and Patrick Dyer. Tell everyone how you're doing, guys. We doing well. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. <laughs> today we'll be discussing Chapter 10, Be Precise in Your Speech from 12 Rules for Life, and Antidote for Chaos by Jordan Peterson. In this chapter, some of the notes that I made for just to discuss up top are shorter than most sections because he talks about things, which entails the complexity of the world, objects, and perception. He then goes on to talk about dragons, sins of omission, marriage, and how important our speech is, and being precise with our speech. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys to get any initial thoughts that you had on this chapter. I think the first topic that comes up is perception. Perception opens up a can of worms when it comes to philosophy. Uh, because I think a common problem that philosophers, when I say philosophers, usually uh, it would be Western European, 17th century, 18th century philosophers trying to figure out the veil of perception is what they called it. So I'll start with that, but were there thoughts on um, what was said in the chapter about how we perceive things and how when things go wrong, that's when we notice them and that's when we start to perceive them i thought the complexity of the world description that he gave was fascinating because we only really focus on very fine-tuned specific things but then everything outside of that is a mystery to us the car i thought was a very helpful example and for the listener to give a little background and clarity to this he talks about the use of a car, we don't think of all of the little individual things that are happening with the car. We just think of the car as a thing that gets us from one place to another. And I thought that that was a very helpful example to maybe apply that to how we view the world as well. We're, we're not viewing the things in the world as things. We're viewing them as their utility. He also gives an example of the screwdriver, how when you pick up a tool, it's it becomes essentially an extension of you. So when you're screwing a nail into the wall, you can feel the screwdriver, you know, you can feel the pressure and the weight of the screw going in and the resistance or whatever. I thought that that was fascinating because it's not just a tool. It essentially becomes an extension of you or the car becomes an extension of you as well in that it facil facilitates you moving from point A to point B. This perception goes awry when things go wrong, as you're alluding to, Austin. For example, the car that I was just talking about, say that there's an issue with the car, like... If your brakes go out, then all of a sudden you're concerned with the mechanics of how the car works. Whereas before you weren't really concerned about that. You, you just knew that that was the, the thing that got you from point A to point B. But when it stops working, all of a sudden you need to become fascinated with how does the brake pad work? How does the, 
I don't know that much about brakes. So like whatever the issue is, how, how does that thing work? So then I can fix it and just go back to my narrow perception of getting from point A to point B and not be concerned with the car itself, the mechanics. The world is complex and we can drown in that complexity. And something he encourages people to do is because the world is so complex and uh, our perceptions only so limited, we have to be precise in our speech and we have to uh, be precise in our aim. So uh, what are your thoughts on the danger of not having an aim or not having a purpose as we live in this complex world? If you don't have a purpose or an aim, I think you don't have enough, if we're still talking about this order and chaos, the line between order and chaos. So if you're not having an aim, I feel like the chaos will rush in. If you don't have a purpose, the chaos will rush in, especially just with the society that we live in. We've talked about nihilism before. We've talked about maybe existentialism before too. Like if you don't really have a purpose, I think the complexity of the world and the possible suffering in it um, can just kind of take you over and uh yeah and another thing to add is it's not that having a good definition on things or being able to define things or aim things well doesn't mean that chaos will be prevented but it means you will be better able to counteract or combat or fight it when it does occur which will lead to less less stress over time less chaos over time and you'll you'll stay on the the intended path yes well, I think that was a great point, Pat, because he talks so much about speech in this chapter and how important speech is. And part of defining your aim and to last chapter, I, I think just being able to speak helps you clear your thoughts, you know, or, or to better articulate what you think. I think being precise in our aim requires us to be precise in our speech and being precise in our speech, I think, could lead, or maybe you could argue should lead to conflict. Ooh, yeah. Conflict, maybe within yourself, but then also externally, maybe with some of your other relationships in your life. Do you guys have any, any thoughts on that? I agree. I like that a lot, actually. That sparked some thoughts. Well, it's purposed. So, all right, if you have an aim... We've talked about this idea before when you voluntarily take on a task you're kind of accepting the suffering that's going to come your way and you're accepting it as kind of a sacrifice for a better outcome i think the best example i have off the top of my head is working out right there's there's quite a bit of difficulty and pain involved and maybe even suffering you can describe if you're working out really hard but you're focused and you're willing to take that on and it's you know, in a control, it's not really happening to you. It's something that you're voluntarily taking on and that suffering is able to be turned into something that you want. So that's how kind of the chaos of the pain can be turned into something as long as you're being smart with uh, your path of working out, right? Because if you're not working out smartly, you could get hurt and then that pain would, would take over. It's, does that give a good example? Yeah, I think it does. Definitely does. I was thinking more important decision, like life decisions, 
So, say, job, family, religious affiliation, things like that. That's more or less what well, I there's was this, There's this uh, biblical idea that Jordan Peterson talks about a lot that he really likes, separating the wheat from the chaff. And this is one of the the ways in which you do it. You just set your aim, you set your, you define it, you be precise in it. And as you are pursuing the aim with the precision, that is in a way separating the wheat from the chaff and cleaning the things that shouldn't be there out, whether that do be relationships or personal habits or, or sins of omission, omission, (laughs) anything like that. So I did notice he talked about the wheat and the chaff at the end Mm -hmm. of the chapter. And I think that's where being precise in your speech kind of maybe was introduced in this chapter. Although I think he's touched on it in other places, to be fair. But I think, Austin, based on what Pat was just saying, I think you did give a great example then of working out could be that aim that you have in your life. And you want to be precise about it, so you don't want to overexert yourself or take on too much weight because then you can strain yourself, hurt yourself and prevent you from doing the thing that you've set out to do. Um, But then you can also be specific in what areas do you want to work out instead of being general, let maybe get more specific and then that can help you achieve or form a goal, which then you can set out to achieve. Yeah. I think that makes sense to me now. Yep. Will you humor me? I could take us down a quick tangent um, as it relates to philosophy. Sure. Because I've been kind of studying this figure during the Enlightenment in philosophy. So, um, Enlightenment, within the history of philosophy, the Enlightenment happened maybe 1400s, 1500s to like 1800s. And it was just this shift from seeing the world as uh, divinely created. And like almost every people group having some sort of religious ideas to this idea that that reason in our perception of the world is more important than anything outside of that. So it's kind of depending on our own perception. And then that became more and more important to people to the point where the idea of not having a God existing became possible. And this has to do with perception because people in the Enlightenment started trusting their own perception more than the creation that testified to a divine reality. But there's a problem when that happens because we're pretty finite and our perceptions are finite. But the enlightenment is like, our reason is so important. We can do so many things. And then like the industrial revolution kind of comes out of that. So there's a lot that happens from the enlightenment. But then that kind of leads to what we've talked about a lot in this podcast, which is nihilism. Because when the world is just all about our own fallen perceptions, we can kind of start to feel like there might be nothingness. But then we forget about, we can forget about the fact that we're created beings, right? And many will argue it does take faith to believe that. But I see the grass outside, I see the sky, and and these are testimonies to creation. And there's something much more beautiful than my own reason, than my own um, thought processes. Because when that's the only thing you think about, it can become lonely. I like that. You can intellectualize everything 
and reduce everything, break everything down. But the world is beautiful, even though it's tragic. So are you saying maybe to, maybe there's not a need to over-intellectualize everything? Some things can just be taken at face value and appreciated. You, you mentioned creation, nature. Is my understanding correct with what you're saying? Oh, yes, definitely. Why, why do you think there's a, that need to rationalize most things or to reason? Why do you think we have the need to reason something to the point where we miss it altogether? In your situation, maybe that could be argued with the philosophers sitting on a perch instead of getting out into the world and doing and being and I don't know is that is that fair of me I you know I'm not it sure is. I that's a huge yeah that's a huge philosophy question I'd kind of I'd give a narrow answer which is like let's imagine the trauma that people can experience and how out of control people can feel in their life and sometimes I think turning to reason and then the enlightenment was bothered by I think the corruption, some of the corruption they saw in the Catholic Church and the corruption they saw in the tradition, it became, it became archaic. It became this, uh, this kind of this broken system in some ways. So they turned to the control they can have with their own thought processing, with their own reason, and trying to create their enlightenment, trying to create their own transcendence, their own paradise. There was a quote that I wrote down from this chapter that the quote says the escape from tyranny is often followed not by paradise but a sojourn in the desert aimless confused and deprived would you characterize that transcendence i guess we could call it away from the church into a postmodern era or into whatever you want to call it do you think that we've wandered into a desert aimlessly or do you think that the i am oversimplifying this there's more purpose the enlightenment produced so much good i think we could all attest to that but do you think there's a component or some components of the thinking of the time or belief that has manifested itself negatively that's so interesting that you would take that psychological truth that when you escape tyranny, you know, you want to go to paradise, but you kind of have to go through the desert. And this is kind of referring to the biblical story of Exodus. You know, Moses gets the Israelites out of the slavery of the of Pharaoh, of the Egyptians. But then they're in the desert and they're not really following God. And they're just in the desert for a long time, 40 years. And they finally get to, you know, the promised land. And I've mapped that on to uh, trauma stories. To, it, that helps. It makes sense. Like if let's say there is a there's a spouse getting out of an abusive relationship they get out of it but they're out of that tyranny and they want to get in a better relationship but kind of first they have to navigate what life is like without this tyrannical power and that can be confusing and you have to go through that desert before you can get to a place where you can have a healthier relationship but you mapped it onto history and i thought that was very interesting and i think there's something true to that i think the Enlighteners were trying to get out of the tyranny of a corrupted religion, of corrupted religious practices. And they 
were shooting. And who can blame right? them yeah, for that? I like right? that. Good point. Yeah. And they were shooting for transcendence, and they just kind of fell flat on their flat on their face. And we see we're left with kind of some meaninglessness in society and philosophy um, after the Enlightenment hits its peak. Yeah, I also noticed in the chapter, Austin, he does map the escape from tyranny more on the personal relationship level. Basically, the whole chapter runs through an example of a marriage or a failed marriage. And I think that's more so where that quote comes from. But I do think it, to your point, maybe it could apply to history or to other things. Any thoughts there, Patrick? Let's see here. <clears throat> I was going to bring up as well how it relates to Exodus. And there's a really interesting part. Uh, the Israelites actually at one point in time were saying they wanted to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. We often see people in relationships like that, whether the good or bad, they often go back to what they once left just because it was known. They Maybe they didn't have to set a new aim and a new something new to be precise in because that's really hard to do yes and so it's much easier to go back and be stuck where you were slash are less effort so just something to keep in mind just for our personal selves when when we do finally leave something we find tyrannical or wrong in our lives to the only way to not go back to it is to have our eyes forward truly set on the aim. And then I, I really like this chapter in just being precise, just in general, to making a real true claim on what it is you're seeking and then pursuing. And you seek, you shall find. And that's the only way to not go back, is the, I think is one of the points he's trying to make. And that we one of the points we see in the Exodus story. To not go back, you have to have this defined very accurately too very accurately because tyranny is still a form of order yeah exactly right. great point yes very good point. and and that uh the chaos of the desert can be terrifying <laughs> this might be this is yeah i actually have a contemporary christian song in mind it's really popular. Do you know the song Oceans by Hillsong? Yeah. Can you mm -hmm. think, can you picture that? Like, it's just, I think the song pictures this idea of standing out and before an ocean and this vastness and just walking out in trust. And I, I think the songwriter had the idea, was it maybe Peter walking out in the water? Is that? That was okay. my understanding. Yeah. yeah. Well, we see Peter kind of do this. You, you just step out into the possibility of drowning. And I think that's the problem. I think it's trust because the Israelites were trying to learn how to trust God in the unknown. And they would rather just kind of run back to the tyranny of the known. Well, I know we're going to get food in, in Egypt. So let's go back because I have to trust that food's going to materialize from the from the sky. Like, I don't know if I want to trust that or not. So I think trust is part of that. Think of how strong the pull of knowing where your next meal is coming from, where food and water is going to come from, because they had just got done witnessing 10 crazy miracles before even getting out. Then 
then the uh, the Egyptians were drowned in the in the Nile, and then then there they had a pillar by by night, and then a pillar of clouds by day, and yet through all that they still wanted to go back. So I'm saying they they had all of this stuff that they know they could have put their trust into, they could have easily, and yet still still they had that strong feeling. Yeah, well, they're still in the desert. It, yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah. And that kind of, this is a side note. Maybe we should get into this at some other point, but that has a lot to do with fasting, which is interesting. We'll talk about that later. Ooh, expound on that. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, just real quick. So making the choice too fast to forego, literal of food fasts, uh, hunger is one of the, like the most key driving forces humans face. And so being able to forsake that and still make good, rational, cognitive, wise decisions is such a, that's a very powerful thing to do when you're really hungry. It would be a lot if we took a deep dive. So we should, we could wait a little bit. Well, I think that's why fasting is such a spiritual thing. Yeah, it is. Exactly. You're saying there's something I spiritually depend on more than food right there's something and we see that in many religions there's something real to that definitely and that's freaking awesome (laughs) do you guys practice fasting at all regrettably no (laughs) not not for a long time i mean i think we've all fasted before but i don't on a regular basis yeah i i don't either i think i did a bit when I was younger, when maybe we were in high school, just as a reminder for the listeners, uh, Austin, Pat, and I went to high school together, a small Christian school in the Cincinnati area. But yeah, I think we did for like a Bible study or things of that nature. But I find that I'm, you know, more irritable. I'm less clear in my thoughts when I am hungry. So there is something powerful about it because you do you do have to rely more on god because you're at your wit's end things that would come easier to you become harder uh, as a result i think of being hungry or fasting definitely a a powerful vehicle for uh, humbling yourself and relying on the will of God, but I also, I don't practice it. I mean, the truth of the matter is I really have no interest in practicing it, but, uh, my will is too weak. (laughs) I wanted to ask a question as it relates to, uh, ignored reality. This is a point that, uh, Peterson makes. I think it's worth talking about. Yeah. Here's the, here's a quote. Ignored reality manifests itself in an abyss of confusion and suffering so for an example like or to make it more concrete if you're ignoring your responsibilities you'll start to kind of get swallowed up by chaos and suffering do you feel like that relates to the aim part we were talking about earlier but any thoughts on ignoring reality oh man that's so true, the getting swallowed up by chaos if you're ignoring responsibility. I, I was telling you guys before the call, I slept in more today than I have 
in a long time. And I didn't realize how important it is for me to wake up at a reasonable hour and to, you know, just start doing simple things, chores, whatever it might be. And today's been very good, but it also something feels off, even though that's a small responsibility of waking up, starting my day. But when I wake up and I start scrambling, even that little bit of chaos, like I can feel truthfully, maybe I would not have changed anything. Maybe I, my body did need to rest, but to maybe delve into more of a deeper example of that, maybe it could be something more consequential, like, uh, we don't have kids, but you know, if you're not responsible for the people, like if you do have kids that you're in charge of, it's multiple people that are hurting or going without their needs being met. So yeah, it's definitely important to stand up to the responsibilities that you do have in the day. Cause they're only going to keep growing as we continue to get older. Do you guys agree with his estimation on that? These are true sins when you omit that your responsibilities Oh, was he? I thought he was talking more about speech for the sins of omission. Are you applying it to the responsibilities? Everything all-encompassing? Okay. I don't like to, but I think I would say... I would say, yeah, I think so. Austin, it seems like you're lost in thought over there. (laughs) (laughs) I was just listening, but... Yeah, I was thinking... No, I was thinking about... I think his example about relationships... Uh, was pretty powerful to me because he, like you said, throughout the chapter, he's talking about a married couple. But then he focuses in on, um, like, in communication within a marriage. If you're not being clear in what you're talking about with your spouse, the conversation could start to begin to be about everything. So if you're not careful about what you're talking about, then you could just start bringing in all the things that are wrong in the relationship. And then that just piles up. To the point earlier, it, it's that's drowning in chaos when you're just bringing every... It, it is helpful to have that specific... What are we talking about specifically? And focus on that instead of bringing in examples. And that's easy to do when, you know, if you're in an argument or a fight and they're maybe critiquing you on something you don't want to hear and then... They're saying, well, you do this. And then you could say, well, you do that. And then the conversation, where, where's it going now? It's no, it's no longer productive. It's no longer about the one thing that maybe they were trying to tell you in confidence or, you know, they wanted to talk about this one thing, but now you're bringing in something else. And then maybe they bring in something else. And now what are we talking about anymore other than just fighting? <laughs> Have you experienced that in relationships, Patrick? Run it by me one more time. That if you're not being careful about what you're talking about, it can start to turn into a conversation about everything. Because oh yeah, definitely a negative emotion can start to yeah. You just start bringing in things that that you have had problems with. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> He's got to be careful because his uh, his girlfriend's sitting behind him. <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry for the hot seat just question. joking with you pat <laughs> <laughs> uh funny 
No, I get it though. Yeah, it's I don't think we're saying anything on here that's betraying the trust of our loved ones, but I mean, just generally speaking, I think we can I mean, even with our parents, you know. Uh I mean, we're older now. We don't live at home, so there's not much I don't I wouldn't say there's much for us to have disagreements or arguments about with them when it comes to specific actions that we're doing. But I mean, there still could be conversations, maybe of a parent or a close friend that's trying to bring a conversation or it could be a critique even to our attention. And if we're not willing to hear that or, or deal with those issues, and let's assume too that they're doing it in a respectful way. They're not just being joiks, uh, which for the listener at home means jerk. So let's assume that their intentions are good and that they're bringing something to our our care that needs to be considered. Um, we shouldn't just shirk that away. We shouldn't bring in other issues into that issue to drown the conversation. But it, it is difficult to deal with those things. It's tough to hear criticisms it's like that's not fun i think the default is to kind of ignore or not deal with those things to sweep them under the rug but then but why well it's it's i think it's difficult to look at where you're not measuring up because there is so many areas that that could be or at least it can feel that way but Realistically, there's probably a few areas where we're not meeting expectations or we're not measuring up to the people that we love or to ourselves personally, but it can feel if you're not confronting yourself about it or you're not having that careful, precise speech with the people that it would apply to in the moment that it's happening, you could feel like I have so many faults wrong with me. How can I deal with one of them? You know, you can get overwhelmed. I think is kind of the theme that's been running through this discussion. What's a part of improving yourself is allowing the dead parts of yourself to come off, to die. and Separate uh, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's painful, you know, and that goes against your pride because you're trying to defend yourself and trying to defend the decisions that you made. But, oh, no. Maybe you've made some mistakes and you need to admit to that and you need to kind of step into that tension. We can't forget that not doing these things is a very fast track to, to hell, like in a, in a very literal sense and then our day-to-day live sense. Like you will quickly find yourself consumed, like you guys were saying, in chaos if you do omit these things, if you forsake these things. And I mean, he even says that at one point in there, like he straight up, like uh, something like do not underestimate the destructive power of sins of omission. And that's, that is exactly what he means. We are shaped and informed by what we voluntarily encounter and we shape what we inhabit as well in that encounter. This is difficult, but the difficulty is not relevant because the alternative is worse. And I think that hits on what both of you guys were just saying. It's difficult to look at ourselves, to be critical, to have difficult conversations, especially with a spouse, a close friend, etc. Those relationships that we highly value. 
it can sometimes feel like that conversation will lead to other problems or that the difficulty is just too great. Why take it on? But then, I mean, this quote is letting us know like the alternative is worse. And, you know, if anything, you just continue to dwell in an unhappiness if you're not willing to have that rigorous examination of yourself or that conversation with others if you are unhappy and that conversation could help resolve that unhappiness maybe it's worth having or i should say it is worth having and it's scary to think when you become familiar with that that will be your choice to stay in and it's the easier choice that's that's the version of that's another version of tyranny and that's hmm. like austin was saying earlier that's also actually a form of order which is known and easy to stay in I'm an Enneagram 9, so there was a lot of references about peacekeeping in this chapter, which hit me hard specifically because it's not good of you to sweep things under the rug in order to keep a false sense of the peace. Sometimes it's better to have that conversation, get to the root of the matter, and just be done with it, to your point, Pat. Here's a quote. That's the harder thing. There is little in a marriage... That is so little that is not worth fighting about. Holy cow. Yeah. I didn't realize it was going to lead to that, but that's something Peterson says in the same chapter. And and that threw me for a loop when I first read it because it felt like, were we trying to like nitpick everything? But I think the point is, when there's conflict, try to use fair-minded communication as much as you can to try to get back on the same page. And oh my gosh, it's so easy to let things go because... I, I'm very similar to Logan in being wanting to be a peacekeeper, uh, peacemaker, and just like avoiding a conversation or just being patient to the point where I don't talk about my own emotions or my own feelings. And that, ooh, that could cause some problems in a relationship for sure. So why do you think in this chapter, Jordan uses this example, especially with all these relationship things, with being precise in your speech because you know it's real difficult if only one of the two is yeah if you're in any sort of relationship friendship yeah literally any family relationship and if it's generally problematic and both parties feel like this relationship is a problem Mm -hmm. i think the only way for it to get better is to be specific break it up into pieces and be specific about problems that is not just like character shaming or judging but it's when you say this i feel this way or when you say this it feels to me like you're saying it like this you know and another person could clarify if you can try to break it into pieces and be precise in your speech that can give positive headway but oh my gosh easier said than done it it is easier said than done but it's also as simple as that, though, which is the crazy thing. Wow, it's both true. Yeah, it really shouldn't be as difficult as it sounds, but our pride is so strong. Our pride is so strong, yes. And it reminds me, in the book of James, it says, to he who knows what he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's James 4.17 
I guess depending on the translation you read. But that idea is very similar here, if not the same. Right, right. The sin of, sin of omission. Yeah, it's almost like a trust your own judgment kind of thing too. Like mm. if you see something that's off, you don't do anything about it. James is like, it's safe to say that's a sin. <laughs> don't yeah. do that. We even have a saying at the company that I'll be leaving shortly, but the saying is see something, say something. Hmm. And that saying almost seems like it derives from this kind of truth where if something feels off or seems off, it's better to say something now because it, it could grow later. Maybe it's a problem that could nag or persist, but if something just kind of feels off in the moment, Sure, it might be a little awkward having that confrontation, but at least you're saying it now because saying it in a year after that problem has persisted for that long is going to be a lot more difficult to deal with. I love the anecdote he shares, or it's not an anecdote, anecdote, sorry, it's a reference to the story about the dragon. I thought that that was great because for the listener, uh, if you've been reading along with us or even just for some background, uh, he shares a story about a dragon and the dragon is about the size of a cat and it lives in the house with a boy and his mother. I forget what the name of that story is called, but as the story progresses, the dragon starts growing whenever the mother does not acknowledge that the dragon's in the house. And eventually the dragon gets so big that it takes up the entire house and the mom and the boy, I think, get pushed out of the house or they're like, basically have no room to live in the house. And then when eventually the mother acknowledges the dragon, it starts to shrink and it shrinks and shrinks until it's about the size of the house cat again after they keep acknowledging it and talking about the dragon, which they had been ignoring throughout most of the story. And then at the end... I forget what the mother asks a great question uh, at something along the lines of how, how, why did that dragon get the, as big as it did? And then the son says, I think it just wanted to be noticed. Hmm. And obviously our problems don't have feelings like that dragon would, but I think there is some kind of truth there to the problems that we do have. Maybe they just need to be noticed and talked about. Curious to get your guys' thoughts. I think this issue is particularly difficult in communities like schools. So my mom is a principal at a Christian school. Has it been seven years or longer that she's been a principal? Hold up. What? Yeah, time flies. <laughs> Dang, bro. For the, listener, for the listener, Austin's mom, when we were in school at the Christian high school, she was our science teacher she taught a couple different courses in, in the sciences but now she's a principal she was promoted since we've graduated that's just yeah, so my mama had me my mama principal mom <laughs> so um she's noticed kind of a trend and i've noticed in just the story she's talked about over the years that when something bad happens in the school kids won't say something about it because it's considered snitching and this idea of snitching, it does come from, you know, the culture of hip hop 
and it does come from this idea of gang culture from inner cities as well. Like that's a thing where in order for gangs to stay together and functioning, you can't have anybody ratting anybody else out to the police, right? So I think that has kind of permeated all throughout the U.S., even in a, you know, predominantly white Christian school, you know, there's diversity, but um, just this idea that snitching is such a bad thing to do, but what does, when you avoid snitching, you're allowing all these dragons to grow up in this community, and you're allowing all these problems to go unnoticed, and the suffering go unchecked, and oh man, what kind of advice do you give a high schooler who's concerned about not being considered a snitch, but is still seeing these problems and doesn't want to stand up for, I don't know, bullying or, or other things like that. How do you combat that? I think that's interesting to bring that example of the story outside of the context of the home or your close interpersonal relationships in a house and then applying it to a school where there's obviously a lot of other complicated uh, complex relationships going on. What's the motivation of the student to not quote unquote snitch or rat someone out? It could be detrimental to status. Uh, they could actually know the person and not want any undue consequence to befall them. There's probably any number of reasons. That's just a couple. But I think we would assume, right, that they know. This, all the students, should something happen, would know that the thing is wrong. In general, yes, for sure. We would assume, yeah. But then, why not tell the truth? I think it's maybe that idea of sacrificing your pride or having to or having to dive into the tension that that could cause. Like, oh my gosh, this person who's did this wrong thing is going to think of me. Yeah, the conflict. Yeah, the that's, conflict. That's... So much of school is avoid, <laughs> avoiding conflict. Yeah, yeah, good point. This chapter seems to be kind of really emphasizing the need for conflict and how that's the best way to keep sustained peace is to just talk about the issue. So, Austin, you have the perspective of being a substitute teacher now. Would you say that there's value maybe if they're not going to a principal or teacher necessarily to talk about something that's happened do you find that there's value just conversations among students that may be difficult say something were to happen them settling it amongst each other or do you think there needs to be um a discussion with an authority figure like the teacher that's a great question i don't think i have a like a face value answer but i think students that care about justice are constantly evaluating the impact of possible suffering. So, like, if something, like, I don't know, stupid happens in class, it, w it would be probably foolish for a student to, like, rat someone out all the time for something, and that's just, you need to be discerning in those situations. But if a student sees someone really being hurt, okay, I think this is a time for me to... So it's just, like, constantly trying to discern when you need to address an issue and who you need to address the issue to the person causing the problem or the person that could an authority that could do something about it or the person that's been hurt like there's a lot of decisions to be made so i don't know i guess i'm just trying to highlight the complexity of it and the need for discernment in order to try to seek justice in the most effective way 
Oh, it's even harder to even attempt or want to address anything like that if you don't have a solid support system, whether it be supportive family or friends. Exactly. Are you talking about the school example specifically, yeah, Pat? Yeah, could even relate to, to work, like our individual jobs or something. Because if you really are going to, for lack of a better term, stick your neck out there for someone else or for even for yourself, and it doesn't go well, I mean, that's even harder if you don't have friends to back you up or to catch you or something like that. Or even to help you think. Right. And that's, that's probably another reason why a lot of people don't say anything as well or take some form of action. Oh, because they maybe don't feel like they have the proper support backing them? Maybe, yeah. Because I know, I can think of some examples that we've personally had where sometimes it's been easy. Well, I'd say most of the times it's been easy to step up or support someone because I knew like, whether it be my family or one of you two or anything like that, like I could explain the situation and just be supported. Listening is such an undervalued skill. I think a couple episodes ago, we talked about that. Just like people that truly listen to you and want to ask you questions and better understand where, what you mean, where you're coming from to Pat's point. I think that can't be valued enough. Yeah. People, we probably overestimate people's friendships People probably don't have as deep of friendships as we think they do. Why do you think that is? Hard to say, especially since we only know the lives we've lived. But from hearing from other people, especially older generations, just social media connections just aren't generally the same. They're not not saying they're not bad. They actually are quite valuable. Uh, But they may not always allow as deep as a face-to-face interaction could be or as nice as like a hug could be in a situation when you need one or stuff like that, maybe. Yeah, that's, I think that's a fair point that digital interactions should never be traded for the, like you were saying, a hug. You'll never be able to get that kind of feeling via the digital sphere and watch me say that. And then (laughs) next week, Facebook releases something, but (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely, I think, less accountability just in the relationship itself if it's if it's not in person, too. But but here we are on a Zoom call. So, <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Well, but to be fair, we didn't meet on a Zoom call. The Zoom call facilitates our friendship, but... And it's... I think all of us would agree being in person beats yeah, any yeah. type of video 100%. communication by a mile. 100%. So if we all live closer together, you know, we'd be in that room mucking it up, boys Man. being boys, you know, oh, putting holes in walls. <laughs> Dang. Oh. oh my goodness. I, I think that was a great conversation summarizing chapter 10. Life is effort maintenance pour into the relationships that you love and have those difficult conversations what do you guys think one quote that i really like that he says all the time that i associate with this chapter that i try to tell myself all the time whether it be like at my apartment which i fail at a lot i'm a lot better at this at work but it's uh slay the dragon in its lair and 
and that idea of of take care of it now before it's too late like that i i associate that strongly with being precise in your speech get it while it's sleeping yeah exactly yeah before it becomes something take it down let's go baby and oh my goodness you like can't that, find all the dragons in your life by yourself you have to have other oh, eyes amen. other people yeah. in your life finding showing pointing out to you those caves yep. with those sleeping dragons someone's got to watch your back well and even austin yeah. that's such a good point because even in the example of the story in the chapter the boy points it out to right. the mother even in that case you're gonna have a short-sightedness or you're not gonna see it at first i mean you might as it gets bigger or you might have seen it all along who knows but to just have someone call it out and bring it to your attention i think is valuable as long as we remember further for further conversations just for the rest of our lives really how important this chapter really is and how it relates to our claims of Christianity our speech really does need to be insanely precise as do our actions behind our speech otherwise it really will be meaningless so it's just an important Important thing to remember. This is difficult for a verbal processor to hear, but <laughs> I'm kidding. No, you're right, Pat. It is important. This is good, though. That's a manual for authentic living. Thank you for tuning in to this week's book club discussion. Please let us know if you have any suggestions as to books we should read or topics we should discuss by contacting us at beingbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's beingbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you join us next week for another conversation.